Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I'm here with Alicia, Laura, Mia, and Stephen. And we're going to be talking about the 1960 film La Ventura, directed by Michelangelo Antonioni. But first, let's introduce ourselves. Laura, what have you watched since the last time we recorded? I watched um, Network, the 1976 film directed by Sidney Lumet and written by Patty Chayefsky. And it was the first time I'd seen it. So it was pretty hard hitting. It was um, it was just an incredible film, such prescient writing and just so violently entertaining. Um, so it was just it was a great, great movie to watch. It's a good description, too. I like your review. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Steven. <laughs> I, yeah, it was pretty, um, it's heavy, man. It is one of my favorite movies like ever. When you were talking about it, I just remembered how much I enjoyed it. And I enjoy it every time I see it. And I hadn't seen it in a while. So it might inspire me to watch it again. It's just the writing was so fresh. It really just blew me away how, you know, it's from 1976. And it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mia, have you watched anything? I don't think so, other yeah. than La Ventura. Um, Jeremiah and I were out in the desert for 10 days, so we really have been disconnected from media. We watched like a few episodes of Sex and the City since we've been back because we <laughs> continue. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sorry. Since this, this is the multiple times we've been talking about Sex and the City, I I want to ask, Does all the it hasn't aged well. There's a lot of problematic episodes. And yeah. since does it, it's you seem like it's your sort of your like go to blanket comfort food, but doesn't it disturb you? Like, do, do you struggle with that at all? I'm just curious. Yeah. So it's actually funny you say that because I think in some ways, the, my opinion, it really hasn't aged well. Like, there's some shit that they say that I'm just like, oh my god, like this is so offensive. You would never say this today, or like plot lines and stuff like that, where you're just like, wow, like. And it's kind of funny because I've watched all of it a thousand times, but this is Jeremiah's first time, I think, really sitting down. You've seen a lot of it. You've seen a lot of it, but not all at once, right? So, and it's funny, like, you know, we both lived in New York for a long time. They're supposed to be these like cultured, sophisticated Manhattan women. And you're like, you're so close minded or just like really like unexposed to things in that as just like a regular person living in New York, you would be exposed to. On the other hand i do find that a lot of like the actual stories and like their experiences as women still really ring true and i think i identify it in that way in a way i didn't when i was watching it for the first time like in my early 20s and i think i was more just like oh my god new york it seems so glamorous and now i'm like oh yeah like some of the stuff they deal with is really real so it's an it's always an interesting experience of like hasn't aged well but also does in a way i'm really curious to see whenever they have the new what's oh my god i'm totally blanking on what it's going to be called but whatever the new series is not sex in the city yeah not sex in the city which i don't have high hopes for in general since samantha is not going to be in it but i'm curious to see how they update it to like 2021 it's called and just like that and just like that yes i knew it was one of her catchphrases yeah yeah i'm a fan of sarah jessica parker and i've watched the series but i do find it very problematic and since it has been coming up a lot i just was curious what your take was so thank you for answering well she said it we were away uh so i haven't really watched any movies since 
the last time we recorded about bicycle thieves. So I'm just going to go ahead and move it along to Steven. Um, I watched a bunch, but the ones that kind of rose to the top were um, Kong Skull Island. Um, the one that was made in 2017 with Sam L. Jackson and uh, Brie Larson. And it was very entertaining. It, it was definitely the fight sequences were crazy. Um, but the movie that I really liked that I'd watched this week was the Taking of Pelham 123. And it was the original one from 1974. Neat. Um, it, it was really well done and they filmed it all in New York and in the subways and you still get the sense that New York hasn't changed that much, even though it's 1974. Um, and the other thing that stuck out and it was starring actually like Walter Matthau was in it. Jerry Stiller was in it. Um, <laughs> Doris Roberts was in it. Um, but it was just so funny that how unattractive everybody was and middle-aged everybody was. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they're all working for the subway system, but still it's just like when you knew, when you do a movie today, you just have to have like, younger attractive people like yeah. at least yeah. conventionally attractive like and walter matthau is wouldn't be famous now maybe yeah and, and he was probably the sexiest person there which he is sexy like... i i <laughs> could yeah. i could definitely i definitely get on board with that okay <laughs> very sexy um alicia how about you i also haven't really watched movies the last couple of weeks i've been really busy with work and uh i'm taking like a class on sundays that has, requires a lot of outside of class time, but I'll just following up on, I think it might've been what I recommended in our last episode, a show called Taskmaster. There's three contestants on that show. Uh, well, there's five, but I'm gonna recommend three of their shows that you can find streaming. Two of them are on HBO Max. Um, Ghosts is one of them and Frayed is the other one. They're both BBC shows. And the third one is called Man Down and it's on Netflix and they're all comedies and I think they're all great and funny. And so that's what I'm going to recommend. <laughs> well, oh, I did want to mention, I also watched an hour of the Bill and Ted bogus journey. Um, nice. Jeremiah that you Good. recommended. Finally. I can only get through an hour and then I just had to get, <laughs> had to stop. Blasphemy. Um, so for those who may not have listened to this show before, this is a podcast where the five of us are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made that comes out every 10 years. The next poll will be out in 2022, so we're basically using that as our prompt to watch some classic movies ahead of it. We invite listeners to take part in the discussions by watching along and sharing their opinions in our Facebook group by emailing or by leaving a voice message on our Anchor.fm show page. And again, this time we're talking about La Ventura, but... Before we get into the history and background of the movie, what did each of us know about the movie going into this viewing? Who's seen it before? Or what were you expecting, if anything? And Alicia, since you picked this one, why don't you start us off and also tell us why you picked it? Well, I picked it because um, it was on the list. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, no, I'd never seen a movie by Antonioni before. I knew the name, um, but I wasn't really familiar with what types of films he made at all. Um, and I kind of like briefly read a plot description and watched the trailer, I think on IMDb. And it seemed like it was going to be a really interesting movie. <laughs> I didn't read the whole plot description. I just had like a general plot description. Um, and I liked the idea of like a missing person and people reacting to that, the fallout from that. And I thought it would be interesting. So that was why I chose it. Um, and yeah, that's really all I knew going in. Like I, that's it really. Yeah. Okay. And Mia, did, what did you know about it? If anything, what were your expectations? Absolutely nothing and no expectations. 
Okay. Steven? <laughs> I'm just um, being honest. Yes, I know. I, I mean, no, but it's just so enough. funny because you, you sounded kind of like some of the people in the movies. You were just like a monotone, like, no. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, actually, let me back up. Jeremiah had trash talked this movie a lot. So I went in not with that movie. expectation, okay. but I was trying oh. not to because I wanted okay. to not have his influence. So I'm just going to say that I knew nothing about it. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll get around to that. Steven, what, what, was your, <laughs> <laughs> what were your expectations? Um, I had heard of Antonioni like Alicia had. Um, and I typically, if I don't know anything about a movie, I'll try not to even watch like uh, the trailer or read about it at all so i kind of went into it cold so i didn't really have any expectations other than knowing that he was really a famous uh filmmaker and that this is like one of the top movies ever made that's the only thing i knew about it okay and laura um the only other antonioni film i'd seen was called zabriskie's point which is sort of this like surrealist um 70s or late 60s not exactly sure um just wild you know film that i i don't think was really telling of what his earlier work was. So I was really looking forward to this film. I did know Monica Vitti was in it. And so I knew that I was gonna be looking at an extremely attractive woman. And I was really looking forward to the eyeliner in the film. Mm. <laughs> did so not disappoint, I'll say. No, I, yeah, it was eyeliner porn and I could look at Monica Vitti all day. I loved her hair too. Her, yeah, She's like, I slept yeah. in a shepherd's hut. My hair is perfect. Look perfect. <laughs> yeah. Even when she took that wig off, and she, her hair still looked great. It just came out perfect. <laughs> just stunning. So I did not specifically trash talk this movie because I'm pretty sure after watching it especially that I've never seen it. I definitely trash talked Antonioni as a filmmaker though. Um, I, Whoa. Because I, yeah, I mean, I think I said so on this podcast. Like I've, I've watched his movies before and have not been a fan. I was hoping to... Uh, to enjoy his whole thing more this time. And uh, we'll get to that. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've, I'm pretty sure I've seen clips of this movie. And I, I went in thinking that I may have seen it and just didn't remember it well. But I think I've only seen clips. So I'm kind of calling an audible here. I had written a plot description because th this one doesn't have an entry in the book that I've been reading these from. And then as I was doing some of the research, I came across this thing said by Andrew Saris and in reading his review from the time more thoroughly, I thought it might be more appropriate to just read his plot summary from his review from The Village Voice back in 1961 as the movie was hitting American shores. So I'll start with that and then I'll go into some stuff I wrote. With La Ventura, the issue cannot be muddled. Antonioni's film is an intellectual adventure or it is nothing. The plot, such as it is, will infuriate audiences who still demand plotted cinema and potted climaxes. A group of bored Italian socialites disembark from their yacht on a deserted island. After wandering about a while, they discover that one of their number, a perverse girl named Anna, is missing. Up to that time, Anna had been the protagonist. Not only does she never reappear, the mystery of her disappearance is never solved. Anna's fiancé and her best friend continue the search from one town to another, ultimately betraying the object of their search by becoming lovers. The film ends on a note of further betrayal and weary acceptance, with the two lovers facing a blank wall and a distant island both literally and symbolically. The film opened at the 1960 Cannes Film Festival, and apparently its first screening didn't go so well. 
There was laughter throughout and booing during some of the less traditionally eventful scenes. This reaction left the film's breakout star, Monica Vitti, in tears, and she and Antonioni fled the screening. Despite this, many of the filmmakers at the festival signed a note delivered to the filmmakers that declared La Ventura the best movie at the festival. And while it was nominated for, but did not win, the Palme d'Or that year, that went to fellow Italian filmmaker Federico Fellini's La Dolce Vita, it was awarded a jury prize. After Khan, the film went on to play around the world, gaining plenty of praise from critics as it made the rounds. Film and culture critic Gene Youngblood, in his audio commentary for the film on its Criterion Collection release, called it the first component of a, quote, unified statement about the malady of the emotional life in contemporary times. The rest of that unified statement being Antonioni's next two films, La Note and La Clisse, which with this film are considered a, quote, trilogy on modernity and its discontents. Meanwhile, here's what leading critic and auteur theorist Andrew Saris said in the March 23rd, 1961 edition of The Village of Voice, which I read from earlier, and I think serves as a good time capsule. As long as the great foreign films continue to trickle into New York at the present snail's pace, the enthusiasm of discerning moviegoers will have to be concentrated on one phenomenon at a time. 1959 was the year of wild strawberries in the 400 blows. 1960 belonged to Hiroshima Mon Amour and Picnic on the Grass. So far this year has been all breathless, but now it is time for another blast of trumpets. Beginning April 4th at the Beekman Theater, La Ventura will become the one first-run film to see in New York. As far as Sight & Sound Magazine's Greatest Films poll goes, it appeared in the top 10 three times, coming in at number 2 in 1962, just two years after its release, then at number 5 in 1972, and at number 7 in 1982, its last appearance in the top 10. And as our gauge for what was popular in the United States at the time, for 1960, the year La Ventura premiered at Cannes, The Apartment was named Best Picture at the Oscars, while Spartacus was the top-grossing film in North America, followed by Psycho. And for 1961, the year La Ventura came to the United States, West Side Story was both Best Picture at the Oscars and the top-grossing film in North America. And for what is worth, Fellini's La Dolce Vita was the number nine top-grossing film of 1961. So, Alicia... Since this was your pick, why don't you start us off with your thoughts on the film? Did it live up to your expectations? It, it was very different from my expectations, to be honest with you. I, what If you watch the trailer that's on IMDb, it makes it seem like it's some kind of sex romp comedy type of thing. <laughs> but then if you read the plot summary, it also sounds like a mystery. So I really didn't know what to expect. Um, but I... I liked it. Like, I, I don't know if I'm just kind of trained by prestige television drama to not be too worried about a slow pace or something anymore, but um, the, the pacing didn't really bother me at all. Um, I didn't find myself bored or anything during it. And I know that's a big complaint for a lot of people about this movie, but um, I don't know. I, I liked it. I, I thought there was a lot to it. It, gave, it made me think a lot. It may have made me a little depressed this week, too. Mm. But um, but overall, I like I liked it. And Mia, oof, I was definitely bored with the pacing. We actually watched it in two chunks because we just couldn't uh, finish it in one sitting. I hated pretty much every single character. Although I did really like Monica Vitti's hair, clothes, eyeliner, <laughs> all of that. Like I definitely enjoyed. I hated Anna. 
Anna, Anna, I thought she was like so annoying and just like, woe is me from the first moment she was on the screen. So I was not sad to see her go. And then I just thought that her ex-fiance and best friend were like being huge assholes. I thought he was like super rape culture at first when she, I guess she was supposed to be like fighting off her feelings. And she's like, no, leave me alone. And he wouldn't. So I was like, I didn't know what was going to happen I, if they were going to like wind up together or whatnot. So I was just very like, oh, my God, leave her alone. And then, you know, once she gave into it and then the whole thing at the end where he's in another woman's arms, it's just like, yeah, girl, what do you think? Like, look how your relationship started. So, yeah, I thought it was beautiful. I understand in some ways like why it's considered this like classic film. I think if the idea is to show the ennui of modern life it certainly accomplishes that um but yeah I don't think I'll be watching this film again anytime soon (laughs) (laughs) yeah for me this was the first of these films we've watched for the podcast it kind of felt like a chore to finish um I can appreciate it I, I think it's obviously a film that launched a thousand ad campaigns um uh it looks great uh I like the lead character, Claudia, played by uh, Monica Vitti. Pretty much throughout, I think there are times where where things get a little muddled, but I guess that's sort of the point. Uh, but, but her presence keeps me with her. That said, the things happening around her and the other characters, I just like do not care about for the most part. I, I think once it moves past the mystery it never really cares about, it loses tension that I guess it never intended, but <laughs> just sorry, it's not my thing. Um, I, I can be down for a movie that is slow paced and doesn't have a clear cut point. But I, there's still just something about Antonioni for me that that doesn't hit home for me. It all, it all seems like very false and forced to me. And that's what bugs me about him as a filmmaker so far. And granted, I haven't watched another one of his movies for about 20, 25 years. So I wonder if, if any of the others would sit better with me after being, you know, hopefully more mature than I was in my 20s or even teens. But Hopefully, huh? Yeah. Uh, Steven, how about you? Um, yeah, it's interesting you say that about other Antonioni movies since I haven't seen any. And now that I've kind of watched this one as a precursor, I kind of would know what to expect because I did enjoy this movie. But for me, since I'm kind of trained as like a person in America that watches movies, and they introduce a character and she disappears, you think that's where the movie is going to be going. And since I didn't know anything else about the movie, that was always in the back of my head as to like, where is she? Are they ever going to solve that? And I think it was probably midway through or like, I was thinking like, I guess we'll just never really know. And for me, that was just kind of off-putting. I ended up watching the movie again and I liked it a lot more the second time that I watched it, knowing what I knew and knowing, knowing that I was supposed to be paying attention to the performances and how the people were. And I think the fact that they were kind of dis- dis- disaffected people sort of kind of drove the plot. You sort of looked at them as individuals who were kind of, you know, even though they were rich, they didn't really care about much. So just that was fascinating to me to just sort of watch. And I, I agree with you, Jeremiah, that I felt like Claudia was kind of the character that I cared the most about is because she cared about her friend that was disappeared and she was the only one concerned about it. But the other characters, I mean, I understood where they were coming from in a lot of the ways, but 
overall, like, I think it was just more of a character study movie. And, and knowing that after I'd watched it the first time, I think that I did enjoy it more the second time. Okay. And Laura, what's your first take on it? Um, well, I thought it was captivatingly beautiful. Um, I thought each shot had so much negative space and it was really interesting. There were so many extreme wide shots that were then juxtaposed with extreme close-ups to connote the intimacy. So I thought that was really effective. Um, that said, the film is definitely affected. It's very stylistic. It's um, purposefully like sparse in terms of dialogue. Um, you know, I, I, but for me visually, it was just so interesting that I kind of, I just thought it was extremely successful. Um, it's a hard film. It's, it seems like it was made to make with, to want the viewer to feel empty inside at the end. And, um, I, it definitely achieves that. Um, I found the last 20 minutes to be extremely frustrating because, you know, I knew, I, I'm pretty sure everyone knew what was going to happen and where she was going to find him as soon as we saw the, the woman that night who was um, the writer. I, I read Roger Ebert's take on this and he actually makes a mistake in his review. He, he, he remember the woman who's the writer um, with the rip in her mm -hmm. dress? Mm -hmm. she, she appears at the end again and that's yeah. who he ends up... So Roger Ebert, then he calls her first a writer and then as a prostitute, as if they're two different women. He doesn't say they're the same person. I think he believes that they're two different people in his take of this review, which I thought was really interesting. And, um, you know, obviously it's just so, it's such a subjective thing, but I, I definitely enjoyed watching this film. Um, I, I think that the mystery of finding her, the reality was they didn't really care, want mm -hmm. to find her. Um, it's very hard to take Sandro seriously as someone as beautiful as Monica Vitti would fall for, but he was so persistent and Italian men have just that kind of, at that time have a way and it was supposed, it was acceptable, you know, to be that way. And it was just, it's gross, you know, it's really disturbing to watch, but um, I thought it was a successful film. I, I think Alicia's questions that she sent us will guide us through a lot of this, the things that we've all brought up at this point. But I, I, there was something you said, Laura, right now that I just wanted to touch on real quick, though. Um, Sandro is like a believable match or romantic interest of any sort. I, I wonder then if if the scene where all those Italian men just sort of come out of the woodwork to just follow Claudia around is that supposed to be the juxtaposition that makes him look more attractive like there's all these like they basically it, it feels like a scene in a cartoon with a bunch of wolves coming out or something and they're just like tracking her and just ready to pounce and in the context of these are the men around her I can see the appeal of Sandro maybe yeah I mean I I don't know how real it was, but I've heard stories. And especially at that time, I believe Italian men are extremely aggressive. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I could see why that would make someone like him seem more attractive. Maybe he was considered extremely attractive at that time, you know, but even also, like there's like a thing of just like they're around each other a lot. Like they're clearly in the mm -hmm. same, like, I don't know if you want to mm -hmm. say class or whatever, but they're just like in the same milieu yeah. with each other all the time 
And, he orchestrated um, that yeah, for sure. They're, they're familiar. Yeah. So I think, and they're also going through a similar trauma. Uh, yeah. So I think that kind of draw, drew them together, but I, I, that's an interesting point that you brought up about the other men. Cause I, I, I did kind of wonder what that scene was supposed to be about. I mean, as a woman, like traveling foreign in a foreign country alone, it didn't happen to me in Italy, but it did happen to me in Indonesia one time where um, I, I was like followed by a few men and it was, was kind of scary. And um, it was the same sort of look in their eyes of like, like what, what is this person that looks like this doing here mm-hmm. <laughs> on this street and how can I exploit this? And um, yeah. so I didn't know exactly what he was trying to say with that, but contrasting it to what she had with Sandro, which was fleeting, but it was still something more than that. I, I don't think so, though, because I think that Sandro, if he didn't know her, he would be just another one of those men in the street. Like he was super creepy from like the get go, like the second that her friend was gone, that his fiance is gone. He's like standing so close behind her in that one shot and yeah. just yeah, like, like literally yeah. smelling her hair, like literally following her around. And I'm like, dude, it's been like literally hours you don't even know your fiance could be like (laughs) Mm -hmm. on the other side of the island still alive like so i think the only thing that made him like a little less creepy quote unquote was like the fact that they knew each other and they had this relationship i agree alicia i assumed that at least part of their bond like maybe there had always been something like kind of simmering but like okay you know you're with my friend and this is just like a line we're not going to cross but now we're driven together by our grief question mark our common quest for her are just knowing each other but I feel like he is those men those men are him the only thing different is that you actually know each other's names like that's Mm -hmm. it I agree with Mia's point that he was very off-putting and I think the film was purposefully made you not know if she was into it or not but then when they were together and she said, mine, mine, mine. I think it had a lot more to do with getting her own thing versus her friend and just being the friend that waits outside. So again, I think that the questions that Alicia has for us can guide us through some of this discussion. So I I think it'd be good if if Alicia actually asked her first question, because I think we're starting to touch on it. So my first question was just, um, I was wondering if you were able to sympathize or empathize with Sandro and Claudia at all for the situation they were in or, or the feelings they were experiencing, um, or if you found them completely unrelatable? I think I kind of said this before, but I, I found Claudia to be compelling. I, I thought she was the easiest character. And I mean, she's the main character, so it's not that surprising. I, at least to my mind, she seems to be the main character more than, than Sandro is. Um, and I, so I found her compelling. I was, and in that, it felt like I was able to somehow sympathize or empathize for with her. Um, even like when she seemed to be losing the thread herself of, of what she was doing, what her goals were, uh, you know, at some point you can't tell if she cares about finding her friend anymore to, to my mind. And uh, I didn't mind it with her as much as with the other characters. Cause you kind of felt like she had cared and you wanted to kind of figure out what she was about. That's how I felt. Whereas with Sandro, I started off kind of feeling for him because like I'd read a synopsis of the movie before watching it that said like something along the lines of 
um, this woman goes missing and her boyfriend or fiance or whatever um, just doesn't care about looking for her. And at first it seemed like he did. So I was kind of like, oh, was that a misreading of the movie by whoever wrote the synopsis? But then that all kind of falls away pretty quickly. And he seems as, as uninterested as the people who literally just go back to their lives of excess and whatever the fuck. Um, and yeah, so I, I did not find it easy to sympathize with him, especially once he started to veer into that kind of, uh, quote unquote rape culture territory that, that, uh, Mia called him out for. Cause it was very creepy when he's just like walking up behind Claudia and smelling her hair and just being completely inappropriate. Um, but I don't know how much of that is like watching it through a lens of 60 years later, or is that just how Italian men, I feel like it's almost like, uh, somehow racist to be like, someone just acted like that then. And that was okay. You know, like that's, that seems like. It's a fair question. You know, culturally we don't know, like, and I, but yet yet we do, you know, because Mm -hmm. we've all as someone Italian, you know, I think that there is a lot of truth to that behavior. So, yeah, I just don't want to, I don't want to assume any stereotype into it myself. Well, it could be a stereotype in that he was like a richer, like person, like he was just of that upper class. So he felt like he could do things like he did with seeing that woman. And that was sort of a misdirection that I had had too, thinking like, if this was like a straightforward movie with the plot where maybe he killed her, that's why he turned to um, Claudia so quickly, because he wasn't really into that relationship at all mm-hmm. um but in in general i did feel for him especially watching it twice you know i felt like he was sort of a disaffected person that like he gave up his dreams mm-hmm. and he was doing what people in his class did which was to go after like the next woman that was available that liked him or he would be persistent and then once that happened he was going to move on to somebody else so steven since you watched it twice I, it's pretty late in the movie that he kind of reveals himself at all past what we're seeing happen to him where mm-hmm. he says that he has been an architect before, but he's not mm-hmm. really doing that anymore. And he feels unfulfilled by what he's doing in life. So did knowing mm-hmm. that from the beginning of the movie and just like thinking of him in that way as like somebody who had goals for his life and those have fallen by the wayside, did, did that help you empathize or, or sympathize with him more that second viewing because you had that to view it from? I did. Yeah. I, I just felt like he was, he was just a, a character that was sort of, you know, even his first girlfriend, Anna was talking about like there, he's away a lot, but this is kind of what he does. He's out with these people. They're doing all these things, but I don't feel like anybody was enjoying their lives at all. It was sort of like they were kind of walking through a haze every time. And then towards the end of the movie, when you see more intimate scenes with them, you know, walking around the church and just hanging out with each other, he sort of lets his guard down a little bit so that you kind of understand where he was coming from. And that's why he kind of was the way he was, even though that's not excusable, but you sort of you sort of get it. So I did kind of empathize with them, especially the part where he had looked at the artwork from that artist and then he mm-hmm. knocked over the, the um, paint and they were going to get into a fight. And he's like, he didn't even feel like fighting the guy. He was sort of like, he he's like, you know how many fights I've gotten into in my life? And it just yeah. seemed like he sounded so defeated when he said that, mm-hmm. that you felt like he was a different person than he was before. And to me, all that rang as pathetic and really hard to stomach and, um, you know, just self-pitying and nauseating. (laughs) 
Um, so that's sort of how I felt about him, but I, you know, I thought she was wonderful and um, I empathized a great deal with her. And I do think that she started out really caring about her friend, but then finally getting this thing for her to herself, um, she stopped caring and she chose this relationship and this man and he was everything to her and she forgot who she was. And, and that was the tale, the half, the second half of the film. So yes, I empathized with her. He, him, I found distasteful um, and I had a real problem, but I, I tend to have real problems with that kind of guy anyway. So <laughs> that's just not my scene. I, I pretty much completely agree with everything you just said, Laura. Like I, <laughs> I cool. fa also found him just like so pathetic. Like, oh, wow, you made 4 million lira or whatever for giving estimates on this thing. Like, sounds like you have enough money where you could just be an architect if you wanted to. Like, stop <laughs> whining. I just have like no patience for that. And, and yeah, you know, it seemed like, she it seemed like Claudia and Anna were like really close like honestly in the early scene when they're changing together I was like are they gonna start making out like is this there was definitely <laughs> right? an element of that yeah, yeah like so was. and I yeah. just chalked it when when they didn't um I just chalked it up to like you know okay it's this a very they're just very very close friends and like on this like other level almost of like your sisters you love each other like very very tight I think also just maybe different era like people just change clothes in front of each other more openly and it wasn't as like a thing where you're concerned about it now or something um but so yeah I just thought like they're so close and then but then at, towards the end she's like oh I hope that she's I'm scared that she's alive and it's like wow to go I mean there's no real time frame in this movie but it seemed like everything was happening for the slow pacing of the film seemed like everything is happening pretty fast so it's like what it's been like max two weeks I would guess and you go from being like so inseparably and like like soul sisters with this person to hoping they're dead so you can have their boyfriend like what the fuck that no but, but was was that woman Leah Masari actually a good friend or Anna um no. no she kept her friend out waiting for hours you know she was just this woman kind of Monica Vitti's character just sort of followed along you know with her rich beautiful friend and um, I think then she kind of just, it all really didn't mean as, as much to her. She cared about humanity and her friend, but I think that the love and something that she can call her own just meant so much more to her. When you really think about how yeah. she was treated in the short time frame of the film. I, I, did, I was able to empathize with both characters for different reasons. Um, sort of actually what we already talked about with Sandro, what Steven brought up in relation to like, he kind of sold out his dreams. And then when you see a young person that is like doing what you wanted to do and you just get that moment of like, just like, fuck you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I definitely felt that. <laughs> I didn't like him like overall, but I, uh, but I sympathized with him in that moment. And I've obviously I sympathized for Claudia for the same reasons that we've talked about. Um, but I think, I think for me, the point was more that for them, everything was sort of like, I think they were kind of, I, I liked the fact that they were grappling with a world where everything was very um, transient and impermanent. And I liked that 
aspect of the movie a lot. Like that really got under my skin. And like I said, I, I think this movie made me feel depressed this week. I think that's probably what it was. Mm-hmm. I don't mind that too mm-hmm. much. I can deal with that for a week or so. Mm-hmm. But um, <laughs> but I liked like they were like he mentions at one point that they used to build things to last and now they don't build buildings mm-hmm. in that way anymore. And the fact that like they so both so quickly moved on from um, their friends, dis- their friends slash girlfriends disappearance. And then they both so quickly moved on. You could kind of tell that as soon as they like made love or whatever you want to say, as soon as that happened, the next scene, they were like not connected anymore. Like he was having an entirely different mood than she was. She's running around singing and he's singing. like, yeah. He's like, I'm going to go out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I'll see you later. Um, and then they mentioned like that when they were on the train, there was that like younger couple that was looking at mm-hmm. the radio and the guy was like, mm-hmm. this radio, this radio is made in China. And just like that kind of thing of like, just everything in this world that they're in now is, is very fleeting. And the one woman that was having the affair with the young artist, Julia, it, yeah, it was mm-hmm. just like everything was very, they couldn't, there was nothing for anybody to latch on to and feel really passionately about that lasted. And um, so I, that, I liked that. I don't know, maybe I feel that in my life sometimes, I guess. Yeah. That's there was a funny point. thing about with the radio situation. I did write down the little quote that the they said, what would you rather have like love or music? And you know, she said something like, you know, would you either have music or love? And she's like, well, you have to look for a fiance, but you can buy a radio. <laughs> so I, I feel like that woman. kind of like boiled down the, the, the movie. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I, I think the most self-possessed character who felt the most comfortable in their skin was Patricia. I love yeah. her. <laughs> yeah. She Lady just Patricia. seemed like she was like, this is all fine. I'm fine. I'm going through my life and I love it. And I'm fabulous. Well, with that much wealth. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, but uh, there were other people who around her who seemed as wealthy or approaching her wealth that were uncomfortable with it. This is where I wonder if like the whole class aspect comes into play in a way that I wasn't able to read because I don't know all the particulars of Italian society in the late 50s going into the 60s. Like maybe she's supposed to be old money and she's comfortable with her wealth where you have this young upstart who is becoming wealthy, but he hates his life because he's not doing what he wants to do. Um, So I wonder if that's supposed to be a part of it. And that's sort of like the post-war progression of like so many societies including here in the U.S. in some ways, of people like growing a middle class and countries growing a middle class and those people having a a wealth that you haven't seen before and being able to do things that people weren't able to do in previous generations. And that's something that I wonder if the movie is getting at and I just wasn't finding it while I was actually viewing it and only in talking about it afterwards, which is fine. You know, that's not that's not nothing. But Laura, what, what did you want to say? Well, I think the idea of class definitely comes into it because she's titled, her husband is titled, you know, so they are on a different class. They have more money than everyone else. I think Sandro is someone who's uncomfortable with his wealth and his decisions because Mm -hmm. he's a failure of a man. And, and he's someone who got cold because he's the typical guy who, once he has what he's been chasing, doesn't want it anymore. Mm -hmm. And it had nothing to, you know, the wealth stuff. It wasn't that he was uncomfortable with the wealth and the opulence. He was just empty. That was my point. Mm-hmm. 
I think with regard to the money thing too, if you're, if you're coming, I think another point is that we, we see it a lot with like movies about wealthy people, <laughs> like they may have all this money, but they're not necessarily finding any sort of meaning right. in their existence <clears throat> anymore, because there is a lot of just like, you made it and now you can just do whatever. Now you can just coast and there's not a lot to be found in life just coasting. Sometimes something will resonate with me. And one of the quotes was, I think it was the guy who was managing the boat. He was like, he hated chartering for rich people because they never have mm -hmm. a schedule, mm -hmm. which made me think like, that's kind of also one of those things where it's just like every kind of, everybody meanders around without any kind of point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and he worked all night. I remember that line. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Exactly. That. So that's what it made me think of too. It's just like, they're just kind of drifting around trying to figure out what they want and they never really do. Like just stuff happens and they move on from there. It's kind of like the little affair that the woman had with the uh, that 17 year old kid. It was mm -hmm. like her husband was like, he didn't seem to care. He's like, tell him I'm upstairs if he comes and it didn't seem to phase him or nothing phased anybody. And that was kind of interesting to me. Like nobody, there wasn't in a lot of highs and lows when it came to emotions necessarily. Yeah. So. I was a little confused about who who was Patrizia's husband. I think that was, was he, he the guy that was Sandra's boss. Yeah, but that okay, okay, yeah. He wasn't on the boat with he wasn't on the boat with them though. No. No. So I think she had something going on with that guy that was doing the spear fishing. Oh yeah, he was 100%. trying to. Yeah, he well, would do it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But who is he? Is he just like one of their friends? Like or... he's a hanger on or something. Hanger okay. on, exactly. Yeah, I, I had the feeling that they do have a thing going, but she was in the mood of like, not now. Like That I'm, was kind of how I thought too. You're on she my was time. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> we do this on my time. You don't get to choose when we're having an affair. Right. <laughs> yeah. Alicia, why don't you bring in your, your second question, if you don't mind? Sure. My second question was, um, were you ever in any suspense about what had happened to Anna at all? Or were you okay with that being left unresolved? I was okay with it being left unresolved because I feel it wasn't really what the film was supposed to be about. But um, I definitely, you know, I, I think that there were so many, there were roads that they didn't follow or quick enough, or it just, it to me, it became very evident that they weren't really searching for her. Um, but I, I didn't feel like the film fell short because we didn't, get a resolution there at all i don't mm -hmm. i don't think it's that messed with them the effect i think the effect was exactly having no resolution yeah i think the film is better because it's not resolved i think if there had been some scene of them pulling her body out of the water which i think there was actually supposed to be um yeah. and then they mm -hmm. cut it or didn't have enough money to film it or something like that um so but i think it would have made the whole film like cheapened it in a way. I think it's good that you don't know. Um, I was in suspense for a while. And then once it's like, they're just chasing these random, like, oh, someone came to a pharmacist or someone maybe came here. I was like, okay, yeah, we're not going to find out. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I just kind of stopped caring. I also kind of, I liked that we don't know. Cause I mean, you know, I assume she died and knowing that there was supposed to be this scene of them pulling her out of the water okay but I also was kind of like you know maybe she was just like fuck all of this and like got on some boat and is like living a whole other life somewhere <laughs> else like <laughs> screw yeah. these people um I didn't well, really she was volatile like yeah. that's that's she probable to lie about the shark her mm -hmm. complete and utter misery or conversation with her dad mm -hmm. um yeah the books yeah I totally agree with you yeah 
So in in the very first scene, I think, when she's with her dad and they're talking about secrets and and Laura like fill fill in because I'm like trying to remember this from watching it. But um, you talk, there's the one thing that I haven't shared. Right. Know? Like I wasn't a good dad and but the, there's one you don't and she's like, I don't please don't ever tell me that. And it's how he cheated on the mom. I felt like that set the stage for the film and the promiscuity and um, how it would be the main focus of it for me. That's that's what I read into it. Do we find out later that he cheated on her mom? No, but he's an Italian man. To me, it's like it's its own animal in this mm-hmm. film. And, and Antonioni even makes it so with the droves of men following that woman. I, I, I think that he made it as an, he purposefully chose that to show that side of the Italian man mm-hmm. and his super ego. Yeah. And the dad also says then, you know, that man is never going to propose to you or he'll never marry you or something. And she was like, so far, I've been the one to say no to him. Um, mm-hmm. It was in that conversation there, which was mm-hmm. another like, why does her dad think this? Does he just I don't you know, I wasn't clear how well they knew each other at all and stuff. So anyways, there's just a few like threads there that I feel like were just left open to what you want to interpret. It definitely was yeah. left open. That was my interpretation. Mm-hmm. So Stephen, how did you feel about the suspense or lack thereof and <laughs> well, the unresolution? <laughs> well, I actually, you know, when I, I think I said this at the beginning that, that I was looking for breadcrumbs the whole time as to seeing like what really happened to her. And I did think that, yeah, she did fake, like she just disappeared. I feel like she got on a boat she had something set up where she left and we didn't see her because she just seemed so unhappy at the beginning and another part of like that conversation she had with her dad when they said like he'll never marry you she didn't want to get married it was like the same thing so it's just like you're going to be caught in this like loveless not even loveless but just like this marriage because that's what people are supposed to do he's going to cheat on you you're not going to be happy so she just wanted to get out of that complete situation and that was the way she did it so i was actually kind of bothered probably halfway through the movie realizing like, oh, they're not going to be able to, they're not solving this. This isn't really the focus of the movie. And after I got over that, I I enjoyed the movie a lot more. So I actually was kind of bothered by the fact that it wasn't resolved at the end because I would have liked to have seen her like, I don't know, at some bar. In a margarita somewhere. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Something like that. And I would have been, I would have been satisfied with that ending. But I know that wasn't a Hollywood ending and that's not what the movie was about, but that's, that's fine. Do you guys remember the scene when she first arrives with Claudia before she goes in to see Sandro and she's talking about having one man there, one man at the other spot? Mm -hmm. Sort of. Mm -hmm. I don't remember that. Which to me also, to Stephen's point, went into the whole, she ran away on a boat and has a whole nother life going on right now. Like there was, both things were equally created, Mm -hmm. which I thought was um, interesting. Both both her dead in the water and living somewhere next to creepy perverted pharmacist and his disgruntled wife, you know, could both existences could potentially happen. So I thought that was really interesting. That's the that I was a crazy thing. The, what, yeah. Weren't those people only married for like three months? Three months. Three months. Three months. <laughs> yeah. The picture Which, like, that's really my point of that he's, <laughs> he's making this the Italian man in this film a lascivious animalistic creature, not necessarily like a real person. I don't know. It's just really strange. Yeah. So, Laura, and I'm asking this seriously. I'm afraid it's going to not sound serious, but like <laughs> being of Italian descent yourself, like, do you find that to be at all offensive in any way? 
of what I'm saying? Like, no, the, the, the idea that Antonioni is like portraying Italian men as just like assholes, essentially. Like, that's who they are. That I, I have to say that it just sort of validates a lot of my feelings. Okay. And that in itself mm-hmm. might be offensive. Sorry, dudes out there who are going to listen to this. I know they're good Italian men out there. My stepdad is one of the best men I know, but I also have a lot of experience with very um, fractured Italian men. I, I think those are honestly situations that maybe are probably not um, strictly limited to Italian. Sure, men. sure. So for that reason, I think it's just kind of a universal thing, especially Lee, like. 60 years ago, mm-hmm. it was probably way more common for these types of things to happen. Or maybe, or maybe it was just more accepted than it and not necessarily more or less common than it is nowadays. Cause I'm sure it, these types it, of things still happen a lot. It also could be where they were, because I think some of the areas were a little bit more rural than they were in the cities. And right. I've had experiences before where I, when I was in, in college, like we'd go to smaller Italian towns and people would stare at like the, the, the girls on our program, you know, mm-hmm. just because, and then I had a friend who was blonde and she got followed around um, just because she looked so different than some of the other women that were there. Um, uh, pardon me, but it's not just because she looked so different. Don't you think? I'm not, does that, does this sound argumentative? It's just that she was really hot and they were attracted yeah. to her, don't you think? Or it could just be that she's someone that if, if it's in a really small town, you're a new, you're a person you know yeah i don't don't think of myself as particularly hot and i got like followed around i think it's like they're gonna like because i've been to italy the men are definitely more forward there than i've encountered in a lot of other countries but i think also if you have platinum blonde hair i don't know what color steven's friend's hair is but like i've been not in italy but in other countries where people mostly have dark hair dark eyes darker skin and one girl i was with is like platinum blonde hair blue eyes and people would follow her around she is also beautiful so who knows but i feel like she got more Mm -hmm. attention than the rest of us did even though i'm clearly american and like no one was confusing me with like um, yeah i I definitely see both of your point that's you're very and, fair. and Monica Vitti's hair is like pl- perfect, as we all commented mm-hmm. earlier. And like, it's very blonde. <laughs> she really is. Oh well, at one point, I think someone said, oh, is she from Paris or something? Didn't French. they? Oh, yeah. Is yeah. she French? Yeah. Is she French? Yeah. Oh, is she French? Yeah. She's wearing very expensive clothing mm-hmm. and she just looks different she, than everybody else. Yeah, she looks out I of mean, place. Yeah. Um, so- I, I actually asked the question because mm-hmm. Stephen and I kind of talked a little bit about the movie earlier um but on friday because and and you mentioned that um it reminded you of psycho because mm-hmm. the first half of the movie you're like thinking it's about this one thing mm. and then the whole rest of the movie is not about that at all <laughs> so i wondered if like that i thought that was a really interesting parallel and i just wondered if anybody else um mm-hmm. had that experience of like really <laughs> kind of investing in the first half of the movie and then being like wait what? <laughs> yeah, I was I was invested. I really was. I was kind of writing stuff down that people were saying. And then I was like, oh, well, I guess that didn't come to it much because <laughs> as a time it was just it was kind of petering off and it was more about the relationship between the two of them, which was good. Like, I mean, I, I did enjoy it once I kind of got over the fact that we were never going to find out. <laughs> It, it is. Was, I honestly was kind of looking for breadcrumbs as we were going, and I and I think I 
knew that they weren't going to find her, but I was like, well, maybe like, maybe there's some little shot. And it's like, obviously <laughs> if that, if that were there, like someone would have found it by now, I would, I'm not going to be the person that's like, I figured it out. <laughs> but I was still also like looking for little clues too. I find the psycho comparison pretty interesting because I get what you're saying of, of it's about one thing and then it turns into something else and you didn't see that coming. But psycho both parts are like so suspenseful in their own different ways. And this movie mm-hmm. is like avoiding suspense at times. It's, yeah. it's like, <laughs> totally. we're going to deflate the situation as much as possible. So you're just watching these people be. And mm-hmm. so like, it, it, it's it's a very small way that it, it reflects psycho or parallel psycho. But but I, I do find it an interesting parallel. I wouldn't have thought I was just stuck. I was just talking about the investment that I had in one of the stories yeah, right. that suddenly wasn't as important. That's what I was kind of right. getting at. No, I find, I find it, it interesting. It was yeah. like similar in that respect, but anyway. I do kind of wonder if there is, if it was actually somewhat on purpose because mm-hmm. they, I don't know what year Psycho came out, but I would assume 1960. it's close to this. Yeah. But, and, and it is like very suspenseful and you're like, it's a, it's a thriller. And it lives up to the thriller thing, <laughs> but this is like totally about like reality and like the disappointment of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of like reality and and how there's a lot of times you just don't ever get answers to questions. Is that all mm-hmm. there is? <laughs> is that all there is? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean th- those two movies came out the same year, so like I oh, okay. I don't think one could have influenced the other because I don't know how e- either of them could have seen the other's movie mm-hmm. in time to filter that into what they were doing. Um, mm-hmm. Just to answer the question for myself though, like I I definitely was in suspense up until a point, like probably maybe even before they wanted me to not be in suspense anymore. Um, and I didn't mind that it wasn't unresolved, especially once like, it, I'm not sure I realized this on first viewing. I think I'm just like now reckoning with a lot of it in hindsight through our conversation and, and all that. But I think the mystery becomes like, why are they like this? And then it, it's it's been and it's answered by the film in all these ways that we're discussing of like you know the class aspects uh the disaffected oh i've wasted my life kind of aspect of sandro maybe all these different mm-hmm. things um but i i did find it interesting i did want to bring this in the thing that uh mia alluded to before of uh according to and i'm, I'm gonna just read this from the wikipedia because i it just it's so like kind of hat that I, I, th- I think it's worth just taking as is. According to Elaine Robet-Grillet, many shots in the, quote, continental part of the film are taken from the point of view of an unseen character, as if Anna was mm-hmm. following Sandro and Claudia to see what they would do. When asked, Antonioni told him that the missing scene, quote unquote, showing Anna's body recovered from the sea, was scripted and actually filmed, but did not make it into the final cut, apparently for timing reasons. So according to Antonioni, uh, it was supposed to be resolved. Um, I'm of the mind that it doesn't matter because it's not in the movie. They were okay with it not being in the movie. So, you know, I don't think it's like, I'm not somebody who thinks that stuff that gets cut out of a movie should be considered like text of the movie. Uh, I, and I also have my suspicions 
about whether this is a filmmaker just kind of slapping down a critic with a silly theory of be like maybe they shot it maybe it was intended to be in there maybe he just decided like this guy has this theory i'm just going to tell him this so he'll shut up about it but I, I thought it was interesting. Well, and even if they did recover her body, like, did she jump? Did she fall? Right, sure, was she that. pushed? Yeah. Like, you know, who pushed her if she was? Like, obviously, Sandra would be suspect number one. But, like, what if it was Claudia? Or right. what if it was Julia? Or, like, who knows? It could have been anybody. But but I do think that, like, for me, as much as I started this thing off saying that this movie was a chore to watch and it's not necessarily my thing, I can appreciate a lot about it. And I do think that having that resolution would kind of spoil what the movie is and what it's trying to be. And I I don't think it needs to be there. And, and I'm kind of glad that it's not. I think it would just seem out of place and weird when the, the movie itself doesn't care if she's dead or alive, it seems like, you know? So I, I don't know why that needs to be answered, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just going to pretend that you didn't say that. And then he didn't say that yeah. and the movie is what it is for me. And, and both existences are true. Like I just, it's, I don't think you need not... to pretend it's not in the movie. So it doesn't. Yeah. Matter. Right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's different. It's a different, yeah. it's a whole different, right. it's a horse of a different color. Yeah. <laughs> what did you guys make of the shark thing? <laughs> she was a desperate for attention. It's just an attention spoiled. grab. Yeah. 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 Okay. She'd also, you know, dove off the boat while it was still moving and was That's like crazy true. like five minutes before that, which I was like, I didn't know it was going to happen. I knew she just goes missing while they're on this boat cruise. I was like, is she mm -hmm. going to just not come up from that? Like what? <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I, I thought, which I just interpreted that as also as like, she's just going to do what she wants to do when she wants to do it in the same way that she like slept with her boyfriend while her friend's waiting outside and, you know, was just inconsiderate yeah. in all these other ways in the 20 minutes that she's in the movie. I guess she was just bored. She was feeling that she was feeling that ennui and she was trying to yeah. <laughs> shake it up. Oh, did anyone else read about the, uh, <laughs> the filming conditions? Oh yeah, <laughs> I know that they had it rough. They so. had it so rough. Like there was at one point where they were trapped. The actors were stuck on that island for three days with no food or water. Oh. I don't know how they didn't just die. Maybe they had like some water. I'm sure they weren't like no water at all. But like they didn't have food. They like ran out of money while they were filming it. They worked for free. Um, who the was it? The actress that played Anna ended up. Yeah having a heart condition and having to be put in a coma oh for God. like oh, two weeks or something yeah. because she, they kept making her go in and out of the like freezing cold water. Jesus. Yeah. It was like, oh that's my God, I would have quit. It was like insane that the actors didn't just walk because they didn't know if they were going to get paid, if the movie was even mm. going to get made, like all of mm -hmm. this. Like it was just like, oh my God, this backstory is fascinating yeah. here. Mm -hmm. I think it affected the way that it was shot and the way that they portrayed their characters probably a lot when right. you yeah. see it. Well, <laughs> it I guess it's that sense. kind of immersive filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> Let's torture them. Right? Yeah. Like you throw a bucket of cold water and somebody yeah. say, act. <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting because they're so like, you know, at least most of them are so level throughout the whole thing even though like oh there's this missing person is she dead all this and knowing that they're going through these like insane hardships while they're having to play these like pampered 
you know, wealthy people who never get worked up about anything. I was like, oh my God, I think if I was like starving and you were like, okay, now you have to pretend to be really disinterested, <laughs> it would be hard for me. Well, I, I wanted to bring up this movie in context of when it was made and where it was made. And specifically in relation to Bicycle Thieves, which we talked about last time. Because I, I think it's very interesting that we go in less than two decades from a movie that's grappling with like, people on a street level suffering from uh, the ills of society and especially in post-war Europe and all that to then this movie that's like kind of sleek and cool and it seems almost made in reaction to neorealist cinema of saying like, we're done with that now. You know, it's, it's, it's like, we want to be stylistic. We want to move on from that. We want to like explore mm -hmm. something else. So does anybody have any thoughts on this movie in that space? that spectrum, that timeline of Italian filmmaking, uh, just at least like from Bicycle Thieves, which we've watched. And if you've seen other films that you want to compare it to. I think there was like a, an economic boom that happened in Italy in like the fifties or not like after the period of the Bicycle Thieves, right. but not long after it at all. And it was called like the miracle. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting to sort of see <laughs> movies that were made after that versus movies that were made before that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And also, I mean, Bicycle Thieves is like a very political movie. I didn't get, this is like a complete like movie about mood and it, it has like political undertones or subtext to it, but I felt like Bicycle Thieves is just like overtly political. So I felt they're just very different, very different. Yeah. I, I think this movie is political in a way in, a, in kind of a cinematic inside baseball kind of way though where th this movie seems so um particularly kind of tuned to play with like what your expectations are of cinema up till that point like it, and i think we've touched on it already like steven i know mentioned specifically like uh that he was looking for some hollywood thing at first and then when he realized it wasn't that you know th that sort of thing um, I think that this movie is playing with the idea of what a movie has to be uh, in terms of plotting or or lack of plotting and just letting people be on screen in a way that um, I'm not saying no one's ever done it before this because I, I don't think that's true. But I think the way that this movie became sort of a phenomenon and well-liked around the world, it was touching on something that I think was happening not just in Italy, because- It's basically the French New Wave and Truffaut and yeah. you know, early Godard and style just is being just as important as the content. Right. The I think you can even see it in like the Angry Young Man movies coming out in Britain, which I think it's a different oh, flavor of it, where like, I think this, this movie and movies like it are sort of almost about repressed emotion and- mm -hmm where England is like known as this very repressed country and they have these movies that are like rebellious and like th these men who are angry and they're going to let you know about it. So it's like coming out in, a, in almost the opposite way there. I'm not sure how good a reading that is of that, but I, I, I don't necessarily agree with the repressed emotion thing. Um, I definitely think there is an affected way of the film was, but I felt like there was a great deal of emotion. No, no I know. I, I, I think formally, like it's, it's, I see. Okay. I think that there is emotion within it, but you have to like find it. It's, it's not going to let you get at it in the same way. It's not going to pull at your heartstrings. I see your point. It's, it's not going to just like be like, 
someone's going to stand up and give a speech on why they're so fucking angry about everything. And anyway, yeah, I think I think it connects with filmmaking uh, schools that are happening around the world at that time. And I think a lot of those societies are going through a, a thing similar to what Alicia was talking about of the miracle of like we have a burgeoning middle class in America. We have the uh, British society now has socialism that is paying for people to be healthier. And there's like a, a, a boom there as well. Um, and then, yeah, the French New Wave, like they're reckoning with the post-war years and kind of moving past that and dealing with like inner emotions of characters and just kind of stretching their legs in a way. And I think also a thing with, with this movie and movies of those sorts is that they're sort of maybe the first generation of sound movies anyway that are kind of building on sound cinema that's come before it in in a big way you know like the the groundwork has all been laid the language is there and now they can say like we're not going to use that language anymore we're going to go against it but you're going to get it because you know understand what that is and you understand like what we're not doing at this point they can kind of be experimental in the way that like pop musicians were kind of being experimental in in the in the late 60s or i guess even the mid 60s too like you have this groundwork of like this is how this sounds or this is how this works this is what i should be expecting to hear this is the note i should be expecting to hear after that mm -hmm. note and then like a group like the beatles goes decides to just go in the studio and just like destroy that playbook <laughs> <laughs> i'm curious jeremiah what do you think about this in relationship to bergman in sense that you know all, all of his films in a sense are just to overgeneralize is, is are about the absence of god mm -hmm. and that they don't hit you hard and they're not films that um, approach things in sort of a typical film structure, you know, is it, are you, is that something you, you would think influenced this film? I don't know. Maybe I, I can't claim to be a big expert on Bergman. I've seen like a, a couple of his movies. I know that he, he definitely has an interest in, in trying to like figure out, like where like the human soul is or something well and yeah and yeah. don't you think that in a way this film is sort of about that as well and like I'm yeah i think so i think that maybe to my eye and this is like i'm not claiming again to be an expert on this or anything but i i think that a lot of what i've seen in the bergman films i've seen so far i would see more of a connection to the stuff that comes like in the next little wave of this stuff, maybe from Antonioni, but also especially from Fellini, where he starts to go into the surreal, and that's the way they start to explore it. They're pushing further and further away from the ground level. Here's a character in the streets living their life to like, now we have these disaffected characters. And then the next step is like, you know what? We're just gonna like have a guy being flown as a kite, and they're gonna just start to build on the realistic language of cinema and add the surreal element to it. And and there are some Bergman films, of course, on the list that we could come to if we want yeah. to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Maybe in the next round. We'll <laughs> and Fellini too. Yeah, and mm -hmm. Fellini, definitely. And aren't we watching The Godfather next? Mirror is next. Yeah, okay. And then oh, The Godfather. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it'll be interesting looking at, I mean, I know it's not purely chronological, but Bicycle Thieves, La Ventura, and then The Godfather, even though like the movie content of The Godfather obviously won't be chronological, but the film 
when it came out will be so yeah full disclosure i've already watched it twice this month you cheated so i'll watch it again i mean i watch it all the time it's right. such a good movie i mean antonioni is obviously something of an influence on coppola because he remade one of his movies because blow up which which uh antonioni did i think in 66 then coppola remade as the conversation in 74 the same year he won his oscar for godfather part two um, and wow. think about Lost in Translation and the ennui mm-hmm. of modern life and how that connects to this movie. So yeah. made by Sofia That's Coppola. That's a great, Sophia obviously. Coppola. Yeah, true. So. Yeah, I mean, Sofia Coppola definitely has a lot of like... That girl got some on. We, oh my God. <laughs> like Virgin Suicides, yeah. Lost in Translation. Mm-hmm. What was that movie that I really hated? Um, Marie Antoinette? No, I love Marie Antoinette, but um, but also I don't know. On me, uh, it was like not the yeah, Beholden, Stephen, oh, the Beguiled, Dorf, Beguiled, maybe? Beguiled. Yeah, you didn't like. Oh that. yeah, I didn't watch that. I couldn't. That was such a bizarre movie. I just, just silly to me. Yeah. Well, add not, that to the list of critically acclaimed movies I didn't connect with. Oh that, yeah, that's foreshadowing what we're coming to. <laughs> but, but first, mm-hmm. why, why don't we come back to this movie and just everybody share what their favorite scene, moments, or element of the movie is? Well, I I did like the scene where they were all in the car together and he the um sandra was just whipping around those corners and they're all in the back seat kind of like moving around um just because you kind of got a little sense of how he really was inside like once you got past all of the disaffective stuff from the, from from the outside it's sort of kind of you know and then there were the three of them in the car so they all you know had something to do with it i loved the scene with julia and the young painter i thought it was just um the fact that she refused to let um Claudia go and then threw her out and it was just the tension in that film that scene was really um creepy and I thought it was really well done I like the music that's the (laughs) thing I've been able to connect with just on my own I, I feel like I would have a greater appreciation for the movie watching again now after talking about it with all of you but I also think that I the the music would be another way in for me because I've actually had it on the background while I was working today and it's just a really good soundtrack that I did not really listen to very closely in the movie I I definitely remembered it in the opening of the movie before it really starts but um, yeah it's a really good soundtrack I just want to add one more thing about the painting the the painter, his paintings were so bad. So bad. (laughs) And it was just so laughably ridiculous that I thought that really helped the, the shot and like exactly what one would paint is like a rich 17 year old dog. <laughs> yeah um i liked the scene when they were um on the roof of the in the bell tower of the church mm. and they started ringing the bells and they realized that it also caused the bells across the way to like ring i was like oh they're like calling for help they're like help someone connect with me somehow <laughs> <laughs> connection i found a connection <laughs> I liked the scene that when they were at the hotel, like the morning after they've finally slept together and she's just like singing and is so in love and is so happy. And he, which I think Alicia, you were saying this earlier, is just like totally in a different headspace. And I was like, wow, I've seen this scene so many times in movies, Um, but it was just kind of funny seeing it in a movie from 1960. I kind of wondered too if like her reaction was also like a little over the top, like a little like, I'm so happy now that we did this, (laughs) that it was like, maybe she was also covering up some ambivalence that she was feeling about it. 
but I don't know if that was really there. I just maybe she was testing him. Projected that. Him. Yeah, maybe she was. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know. Interesting point. Do we think that this is a film that stands the test of time or resonates today? Yeah, I think it, I think it does. For me, it resonated. So yeah, it's not, I mean, I know 60 years sounds like a long time ago, but I think that like the things that they're going through are still things that people experience now, especially sometimes like even more nowadays, it's hard. I think, especially after the pandemic, like everything just sort of feels adrift and really uncertain right now. And we don't know kind of what's going to, what's going to survive this and what's not. I mean, I know we're like coming out of it, but like so many things have changed in the wake of it. You asked two things there. Does it stand the test of time and does it resonate? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Yes. And second answer is no for me. Oh, interesting. Can you parse that? Because <laughs> I'm not sure I follow. Um, I, I think that it is um, an old idea that doesn't quite exist anymore um, in, in relationship that it, it doesn't, men and women don't communicate quite like that anymore. So I think that it's um, dated that way. So you think it's not, you think it stood the test of time, but it doesn't resonate or? Yes. Okay. I know that might be a contradiction and therefore not make sense, but somehow I'm, I'm sticking to it. You're allowed to. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Cause I think, I guess in some ways I feel like it resonates, but I don't think it stood the test of time. That's, that's cool. Um, right. I feel like it, it, and I'm thinking of test of time in terms of like its place on the site and sound poll. Like, I don't know if I would personally consider it like one of the best movies, um, but I think a lot of the themes still resonate and maybe not necessarily like how men and women communicate. I agree with you on that, but just in terms of like disaffectedness, disconnectedness, that kind of stuff. Um, obviously look at Lost in Translation, um, even though that has been out for how, over a decade at this Going point. On 20 so years. <laughs> 20 years. years. Like, it's been 20 years. Like, yeah. That came out five years ago. Um, yeah. 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 I, I think it does. It resonates. Like I, I do feel like I've been kind of not like a Sandro, but just sort of like you sort of move up and you give up some things that you wished you hadn't, even though you're making more money or you're more successful in some way. And that like the decisions that you make aren't necessarily the greatest decisions, but they are decisions. So I, I feel like that kind of still does resonate. And just the way that people kind of move through life without really thinking about what they're doing, they're just sort of doing it, which I, you know, I don't agree with, but it just sort of happens to a lot of people. And as far as the movie itself, standing the test of time and, and visually, I think it does. I think it's just a really beautiful movie to look at mm -hmm. and the way that it's shot. And there's so many like, the black and the white sometimes like I, there was another scene that I really liked when those children were leaving the church that I oh, really yeah. loved. I just thought it was so beautiful. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that you could watch this movie and get something out of it today. And there was the way that the filmmaking was done was definitely something that, that still stood up, I think. Agreed. Yeah. Um, as much as it doesn't necessarily resonate with me directly. I do think it's a film that is itself resonant today. Like I think it's obviously influenced a lot of things. And I think it's the sort of template that a lot of things have followed in some ways and built on. And so I, I do think it stood the test of time in that way, just because it's a movie that's not necessarily for me doesn't 
mean it's not a movie that deserves attention. I've enjoyed talking about it just now more than I really enjoyed watching it at the time. I do think it's a movie <laughs> that I would probably appreciate more on a second viewing. Um, and even though I don't really feel like doing that anytime soon, just to be quite honest, <laughs> like I'm not trying to be a hater on the movie or on Antonioni. Um, like I understand his place in film history. I understand this movie's place in film history. I think that a lot of what I like in movies today, a lot of movies I like today um, or over the years don't exist without this movie existing um, or they wouldn't exist in the same way. Something had to do this, you know, and this is the one that did it. So I, I think it's an important film. And I, I, I do think I, there's plenty to watch and like, like interact with as a film. I have, to, I agree with that point, but to me, that doesn't necessarily kind of resonate, like um, mm -hmm. resonating. I think that's influence and um, inspire is something different, but I, I definitely see what you're saying. And I, I do not disagree with that. Well, I think the the themes of the, this film itself still I find interesting, even though like I'm not necessarily um, connecting with it directly. I'm connecting with it more through our conversation and it, it's it's like a tough watch for me. Like I said at the, at the top, <laughs> like this is a chore movie for me or it was at least in this viewing. Um, but that doesn't mean like I can't watch it and appreciate what it's about and all that. So I do think it resonates in the way that you're just saying would qualify that. Mm -hmm. Understood. Even though it doesn't do that for you, which is totally fine. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so Mia, you picked our bonus question this time around. Yeah. So my question was, what acclaimed movie did you just not get or connect with? And I meant it to be either a critically acclaimed movie or a movie that like was, you know, popular with the, the masses. Do you want to? Share yeah. your answer or oh call my God. on somebody. I mean, I probably have so many. Um, and the Facebook group definitely made me think of some other ones. But the one that popped into my mind uh, was Citizen Kane because I appreciate it in a lot of ways, like we talked about on the podcast, but it just doesn't hit my heart in any way. Um, and then Max on the podcast talked about Dunkirk, which I despise with like every fiber in my being. <laughs> I just don't really like war movies in general. And that one is like war movie on steroids and it's just really loud and yeah, don't care. It's just, it's hard for me to connect with a movie when there's not a character that I connect with. Um, mm -hmm. so that's generally where my struggles come from. So yeah, those are two of my answers but I liked folks uh responses that they had so Stephen what'd you what'd you think um well I had it's funny because in the Facebook group yeah I had one that was I, I guess it was critically acclaimed I guess it's the sixth sense um that I just when I saw it it was just so it moved at such a glacial pace that I was like having a really hard time just watching the movie and then when the twist happened at the end I was like oh, okay and then I just got <laughs> up and everybody talked about how great and I saw it really early on like before, you know, like maybe the first week it was out. So everybody was saying how great the movie was. And I was just like, was it? And I've seen it since and I still really don't get it. Um, and I still don't understand why people loved it so much. Although I like the performances. Um, and then another movie was uh, Brokeback Mountain. And mm -hmm. I think that was because I saw it like years later, like after all the hoopla died down and I just didn't find the love story very convincing. Um, but you, people love that movie and they just think it's like one of the greatest love stories ever. And I was like, maybe I just saw it on an off time or something, but I never connected with it. 
I always felt like it just kind of like happened so fast. It's just mm-hmm. like, I didn't, I guess I didn't pick up what, what I guess it was supposed to have been like sexual tension between them at the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie. I thought it was just like tension. <laughs> so yeah. when they all of a sudden were like getting it on in the tent, I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I yeah. knew that they fell in love with each other, but it was just like, I, okay, that yeah. happened like out kind of happened out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. And what is your answer, Alicia? Um, I said Lost in Translation, which I didn't make the connection necessarily to this movie at the time. But I think when I first saw it, I just, it was like so beyond my experience. Like, you know, I've never, I've I've never been a middle-aged man, successful man. I've not, I've not been in, I've not at the point, at that point, I'd never really like traveled foreign at all and like I just had never had any type of experience like that and so I was just kind of like I don't get the big deal about mm-hmm. this movie <laughs> like this is just boring and you know I don't I'm, I'm not connect I just didn't connect with it um I've seen it since then with a little more life experience and also having taken a business trip to Tokyo where I was pretty much on my own most of the time um I definitely can connect with it more now but I still just never like tapped into like the emotion that so many other people seem to get from it. It just never like, it never took me there, but I like it, you know? Fair enough. I talked about this movie on the podcast recently, I think maybe on the last episode, uh, first cow, I just could not connect with. And I felt almost embarrassed about it by how little I, got the movie i mean i get it i understand what the story is and all that i was just sort of like i don't know why everybody loved this like all the critics love first cow last year and like some people even thought it was going to get best picture nominations and be a breakout film from the indie world and from kelly reichardt and it just didn't do it for me and i don't know if i was just like in a weird headspace that day i tried to watch it or or what i don't know anything about that movie to be honest with you well, um, <laughs> they didn't don't go by you me. Have to if you, get if you're into interested. it, but he's yeah. really selling it for you, though. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I almost felt bad for not liking it because it's like the kind of movie that I want to support. It's like by an indie filmmaker who's been doing it a while, a woman um, who is very respected. I don't want to like be hating on the film, and I don't think it's bad. But <laughs> seriously, it's like the type of movie I would like to like, and so mm-hmm. I, I wanted to like it, and. I, I wonder if I just need to watch it again or something. Um, I don't know but. if you should force yourself. <laughs> yeah, Not sure everything for isn't yeah, for everyone. It's maybe okay. It's just, you know? Yeah, no, yeah. that's true. I wanted, now I'm going to watch it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I anybody thinks you're a bad yeah, person. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I think I'm a bad person. Yeah, don't speak for all of us, Steven. <laughs> <Yeah>. Shame <laughs> on you, Jeremiah. Look, I have plenty of self-hate here, okay? <laughs> I <laughs> thought I cornered that market <laughs> in, in our podcast. <laughs> um, so, Laura... Did you answer? No, I, I didn't. Did. Um, I mm-hmm. my answer is the 2019 Irish, The Irishman, by Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. I was very frustrated. I really disliked the film. Um, the pacing, the performances. I felt everything was just. There was no heart in the film for me. Um, the effect to make Robert De Niro looked younger was unsuccessful. Um, the <laughs> the fight scene. He, he was an old man's body moving with a younger face. 
it was, it took you right out of the film. Mm. I thought it had a weird, uh, I know this story is based on a true story that came from the daughter's perspective, but it, to me, it just seemed like a weird fu- fixation and obsession with this young girl. Um, and I, I suppose she was supposed to be the moral barometer in the film, but she was basically disrespectful to mob bosses. There's no way an Italian girl or Irish girl at that time would have been able or allowed to be that. There's just, there's no way I would see that without teeth being lost, you know? And, and, then, and then there was the assassination attempt of Joe Colombo at the, you know, it, and none of it was really addressed. It just, it was just very disappointing. And I stopped watching halfway through and I was like, this movie's not for me. Mm. So. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, we also uh, had some good answers as usual in the Facebook group. Uh, Dan called out some Fellini films um, and said that those leave him cold. He also said Breathless uh, and maybe he needs more communism. Sid said Home Alone 1 and 2, <laughs> but also asked, were those acclaimed? But yes. I think that that fits in at least to the other um angle on this from Mia of, of they were very popular right. even if they weren't acclaimed which they may have been I don't really know um, and then wanted to add look who's talking <laughs> I'm pretty sure that movie could not have been acclaimed <laughs> that was, it was definitely, definitely, not. definitely not not um, critically acclaimed no yeah but yeah, uh, acclaimed by like 10 year olds yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed I mean, it it was a very popular film it did very well Christie Alley yeah. John Travolta yeah. it was fun Sid also said George that pretty Siegel. much any film that relies on the adorable kid premise makes him want to stick his head in the oven. Okay. Mm. Marie <laughs> called out The Revenant. Uh, she said, mm. hate came to mind oh, when she walked out of the theater during the very long bear rape scene. She was so upset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like that movie hasn't aged well with most anyone. Like even people who were like kind of hot on it at the time, like nobody talks about the Revenant anymore. And I think that's fine. I, I think that's fine too. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought the movie to me was sort of laughable. Like I just laughed at all that stuff. And then of course, as, as Mia mentioned earlier, Max mentioned Dunkirk. He said it felt totally soulless to him. He didn't give a shit about a single character. And especially for war films, that's important for him. Um, he thought they were all one dimensional and as soon as he was over, he never thought about it again, other than to marvel at the fact that he was so secretly ashamed for so long for not having seen it. Um, it- I don't think anyone should ever feel ashamed for not seeing a movie or not liking a movie or anything. No peer pressure on movies, please. All right. So our next episode is my second pick. It's called Mirror, and it's directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. It's released in 1975. It is, as we've talked about, kind of behind the scenes, available to rent on Vudu. That seemed to be the only place you could find it. But from what I can tell, that's an old transfer from the DVD release. Uh, It's worth noting, I saw this just today, that this just had a new restoration done, and it appears to be available via film at Lincoln Center's Virtual Cinema for $12, which is more than I would normally spend to rent a movie to stream. But I'm going to just put it out there because I think in this case... Uh, It's worth supporting uh, something like Film at Lincoln Center, which is a great institution and supports a lot of filmmaking as an art form. That's a good idea. I'll do that. So that's it for this episode of Stereoactive Movie Club. We invite you to join us in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Stereoactive Movie Club. You can also email us at stereoactivemovieclub at gmail.com 
or you can send us a voice message on our show page at anchor.fm slash Stereoactive Movie Club. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media.